0: This message is from Icon from Community. From Icon church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro Atlanta, Grace, community, community, community and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. Icon or follow us on Facebook. Instagram, a Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Whenever there are major tragedies, whenever we know people that are going through really hard times, there are a lot of ways that we could respond, and there are several ways that we probably should respond. We listen, we we see, we learn, we feel, we want to be present. We want to know how we can be helpful. Sometimes, uh, if we're not knowing how to be helpful, there are phrases that we will uh, repeat. And we mean well when we say them. We want to convey to the other person that we care about what they're going through. We wanna convey to the world that we care about the issues that are happening. And so we say a phrase uh, with the hopes that it will convey something uh, hopeful to someone else or to other people. And that phrase uh, is, is encapsulated by these words, thoughts, and prayers. Something horrible happens and I just want you to know my thoughts and prayers are with you. My thoughts and prayers are for you and your family. My thoughts and prayers are for the people in that other country that are dealing with hard things. My thoughts and prayers are for that community within this part of the country that are that's dealing with hard things. And to many, to, in, in many ways, those are great things. It's very important as Christians that we think deeply and that we pray fervently for things to, to happen, right? To, to see the kingdom of God making itself made manifest in all the ways where we don't see God's kingdom on display. So hear me when I say thinking and praying is a part of the Christian life. But be very careful. Thoughts and prayers should never be a substitute for action, nor should they be a pretext or an excuse for inaction. Anytime our thoughts and our prayers are not met with or uh, uh, in concert with actual action, our thoughts and our prayers display a dead faith, not a living faith. Whenever we offer thoughts and prayers in response to tragedy, we have to be careful because we run risk of falling prey to a a psychological phenomenon known as moral licensing. Moral licensing is where our initially good behavior can actually make us less likely to behave well in the future. Psychologists have studied this and researchers have shown and found that when they, whenever they had people, uh, they would study people and they would uh, spend time get, uh, questioning folks. And they found that when they had people think about a time when they had previously helped someone, they were more likely to cheat on a later task. One psychologist explained, we treat our behavior like a bank account, with good behavior earning us credit in our account. And when we deposit enough deeds into our moral bank account to make us feel like a good person, we sometimes use this as an opportunity to slack off. Today, think about what we can do. We can easily broadcast our wishes of thoughts and prayers with a quick tweet or a a like on Facebook. And the threat of moral licensing begins to loom large. And we're all in danger of publicly offering our thoughts and prayers, giving ourselves pats on our backs for offering support and then failing to do anything else. But again, prayer was never meant to be a substitute for action. Jesus didn't merely tell us to pray for those in need. He said to help them, to feed them, to clothe them, to welcome them the brother of Jesus reiterates this point in our passage today. Ultimately, what we're gonna see uh, from the half-brother of Jesus, James, what we're gonna see from James is him extending out this theme that he's been building upon from the first uh, chapter that we've gone through now. This idea, this very practical gospel, right? A gospel, a faith with real meat on its bones. It's a faith that that doesn't just think that doesn't just feel, that doesn't just pray. It's a faith that acts. It's a faith that moves. And what he's going to show us is the difference between a dead faith and a living faith. A dead faith can think and talk, but doesn't move. And a living faith will actually move and be about real action. So as we go through this, this is the passage that if you've been in church or been around Christianity in any sense of the word, you have heard this passage before, but walk through this with me and ask yourself the question, is my faith, this faith that I profess, is it a living faith or is it a dead faith? Let's start with James chapter two, verses 14 through 26 to the end of the chapter. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save them? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, if it doesn't have works, uh, in the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see, that, you see that faith was active together with his works and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body, Without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, if you are familiar with this passage, uh, even if you're not, you need to know that this is a passage that is often used uh, to prove some degree of contradiction between James and Paul. Folks will look at verses from Paul that seem to indicate that there is something incongruous with, uh, with, with what James is saying here. What do I mean? Well, if you remember Romans 3.28, Paul says that we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But here in James, he says you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You also see uh, 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 Paul in Galatians using kind of a similar uh, phrase, talking about faith not being justified by works. And in each of these situations, you could easily go, well, one is saying this and another is saying that I don't know what to believe. But we need to understand context. Context is always key. Whenever you're running into a problematic passage, I'm not saying it'll always be this easy, but many times. Problematic passages, we can get down to the bottom of it when we dig into the context. And by that, I mean, who's the audience? What issues are happening at the time? What is the theme of the writer? What is the author trying to communicate in order to deal with a major issue in that particular community? Paul is talking to communities dealing with some very different issues than this, these issues that are happening in the Jerusalem church uh, to whom uh, James is speaking. So it's important to understand that in context, there's some different things here. In Romans, Paul is dealing with with people who are struggling with the idea of what true faith even is. He's dealing with people who believe that true faith is only true if you're keeping these religious observances and you're keeping these these, uh, uh, traditions that are a part of the Jewish law. And so Paul is trying to separate them and disabuse them of the idea that the way your faith is truly real is by these repetitious religious observances primarily. And so Paul is really trying to show them, no, it's not uh, the fact that uh, that you observe the Sabbath. It's not that you observe these religious holidays. It's not that you keep these certain specific jot and tittles of the law that saves you. It's actually your faith that saves you. And so you see, Paul, in Galatians, Paul is dealing with people who are struggling with legalism as well and saying it's not how easily and how closely you keep the finer points of these laws that save you. It's your faith that save you. So in one sense, Paul is always dealing with the legalistic people. James here is dealing with really lazy people. People who actually are like, that's right, I've got my faith, I know what I believe, and I believe the right things, and I'm good. You can't judge me, you can't give me any, you can't guilt me, you can't convict me about anything else, because I believe the right things. And James is saying, the issue isn't even about what real faith is in that sense for you. You're lazy. What you should be doing, what your faith should be spurring you on to do, it's not happening, which tells me that your faith can't possibly be real. In other words, faith is something true enough that God does. It's not something we do. It's not about us saving ourselves or rescuing ourselves. But what happens, James is going to show us, is that works validate the faith that has already occurred. We've said it before. Faith. Is the root of your salvation, but your works are the fruit of your salvation. Nobody can see roots. You often can't see the roots of a tree. The only way you know that it's rooted well is when fruit grows. If there's a tree that is dying and there's no fruit on the vine and the leaves are dead, I don't have to see the root to know that that tree is dead. And what James is saying is there's a clear way to identify that the vital signs of your faith are flatlined. That is, if there are not works, specifically works that display a love for the brother and sister or a love for the neighbor, it is obvious your faith is dead. So when we look at these passages and we look at how James opens this up, uh, he starts out in verse 14 with a, just a really good question. He sets it up. Uh, you're going to see him use a, a rhetorical device known as a diatribe. And a diatribe is simply uh, whenever you want to make a point to someone, you create a fictional conversation with a second part or a third party that can come in and say, and, and you kind of use that as a way to teeter back and forth between one point and another. So he creates a hypothetical situation and he does that. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sister, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? So James starts the passage by entering into this diatribe, right? This ancient form of argumentation. And, and he's introducing this argument, introducing this debate, trying to make this point. You know, and this isn't new, right? Jesus has done this before. He'll say, You've heard it said, right? Uh, if someone says, uh, uh, Don't commit murder, This happens, and he starts to explain what that is. Well, James is doing it now. Somebody might say, in this case, they might claim that they have faith, but they don't have works. Can that faith save them? Now, this uh, imaginary voice is someone that claims to have faith, but they don't have any works to demonstrate their faith because they just don't feel that it's necessary. They're not saying that those things are bad. They just don't think it's necessary. Now, this is not a new thing, right? Paul actually writes this to Titus. In Titus 1, Paul says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Titus 3 8, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have behaved in God or believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So, in these examples, right, folks profess, they claim to know God, they claim to think the right things about God, and yet their actions, tell a different story. They deny them. They deny God by their actions or by their inactions. And that's why Paul says here, the saying is trustworthy. Those who believe in God should devote themselves to good works. The understanding of the gospel was the same. Your faith requires good deeds, requires good works, because your faith should be the thing that motivates you into action. So bring that back to James now. Remember, James is addressing people He's addressing someone that doesn't have these good works. They don't believe that these good works are necessary, but they still claim to have faith. So James further develops his argument. He goes further and he asks, well, that's if that's how you define faith, then do you really believe that that kind of faith can save you? Do you really believe that, that this is the kind of faith that is a saving, lasting, faith. And the way he answers his own question is through this illustration. He illustrates that in verses 15 and 16. He says, well, let me give you an example. If a brother or sister is without clothes and they lack daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? It's a simple illustration, right? It's not really hard to figure out what he's trying to get at. What he's basically saying is, This idea that you just have all the right beliefs and you've got your own good personal relationship with God and you've got all the right ways of thinking, you've got the right ways of praying, you know how to respond to the right issues with the right words, all of that's great. But if somebody has need, has any kind of a need, and you know that they have the need and you still don't work to meet that need, what good is your faith? I think it's interesting here because James is one of the first ones I see to develop what the purpose, or this is the first time in his letter where he starts to develop what the purpose of our faith is, what the object of, or the objective of our faith is. The object of our faith is God. The objective is a a number of things, bringing glory to God. And that's a nice, big, all-encompassing phrase that we need to spell out better because saying, well, I just want God to get glory. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, James shows us that God getting glory really here means uh, image bearers being loved well by those who claim to love God. If we love God, then the way we show that is by the is, is through the ways in which we love other image bearers. James here is talking specifically about those who are in that community of faith. But Jesus made it clear that we need to love the neighbor as ourselves. So it's beyond just brother and sister. It's any image bearer. We should be loving. That's what validates. That's what authenticates our faith. That's what proves that our faith is alive. That's what he means when he says, can such faith save him? Because if your faith isn't alive, it's dead. And if your faith is dead, you remain dead. So so when, when, when James establishes this, and he talks about someone within this community and they're in need, they're poor, and they lack daily food, and someone says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. What is that? What do you think that 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 is displaying there? It's no different in many ways than our very almost just kind of knee-jerk, cliche response, thoughts and prayers. I'm praying for you now. hear hear me out. It doesn't mean that every issue that people are dealing with, we have the wherewithal to to, to ameliorate, right? We may not be able to alleviate issues in their lives. We may not be able to, to mitigate some of the effects that are happening to some people. We may not be able to. And to that degree, we want to be there, be present. We want to love them well, help them mourn well, help encourage them. But there are many, many ways in which we can do something to help Right? mitigate the effects that are on our brothers and sisters, that are, on, that are affecting our neighbors. They are, especially today as American Christians, very different from people during this time. We have far more abilities, far more levers by which we can actually affect and impact the well-being of our neighbors. So it's, in, many times, in many cases, it isn't enough to just say thoughts and prayers. It can't be enough. Because it is within our ability to do more to bring about real change. So that's, this is illustrating. It's a small little example, but it's illustrating something larger. In order for them, you, you realize it's something that we can overlook here. One of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. What makes us? What would make them say that? Because they've been able to ascertain what the issues are. They've been able to see what the problems are. They, they're able to see what their brother or sister is dealing with, how, what the need looks like for them. So when we know that there's an actual need and we can identify where those needs are, we have a duty to act, period. It's not enough. And this is interesting, too. We don't have to pray about acting. We don't have to pray. Now, we may be, Lord, give me wisdom on the, exactly what to do. But the idea of I'm praying about whether I should act, that's a, that is a wasted prayer. I'm going to be very blunt. That's a wasted prayer because it is assumed, it is expected, it is implied that to have faith means to act. So it's not enough. Sometimes we just use that as an excuse not to act. Well, I'm going to pray about it. I'll think about it. It's, it's, it's sad, and, and I know it's sad for them, and I really feel bad for them. And that's exactly why, again, James says, can such faith save them? He's basically saying, what good is that? What good is it to see somebody in their need and just offer some religious jargon? What good is it to see people specifically dealing with hard situations and just going, that's so sad, God help them. I'm gonna pray for them tonight. And maybe I will indeed pray for them tonight. Half the time, we don't even do that, but maybe we do. And Lord, remember these folks uh, today. God, give them real hope and show them a way to get out of their situation. That's why James uses this illustration. He wants to show us that anybody who claims to have faith and no works, this is exactly what, what they are like. It's useless. It does not help. It does not bring real change. And it is not the kind of faith it saves. It's empty. It's hollow. It's well wishes. It's religious jargon. It's pious language that doesn't do anything for anybody but ourselves. We feel really good about ourselves when we hype ourselves up on how good our prayer life is. And please hear me. It is the duty of every believer to be praying. We'll have time to talk about that as we get to the end of this series. Prayer is vitally important. That's something that we all need to be doing far more of. But if it just exists alone, there's a problem. Because ultimately, praying and our communication to God should be a transformative prayer. It should constantly transform our hearts that makes us want to love neighbors better. If your faith does not only increase your love for God, but also change how you love and who you love, then your faith is dead your faith should be transforming how and who you love, period. If you don't see that kind of transformation, but you feel a lot of inner haughtiness and and inner pride about how much you know, you know a lot and your faith is not saving you. This is what James is really trying to bring home. He's trying to, again, you're looking at this Jewish community who has been dispersed and you've got some wealthier uh, Christians and some poor followers of Jesus. And there are folks who are overlooking others, but they're feeling beating on their chest and feeling really good about how much Bible they know or how much of the Old Testament, which is their Bible at the time, how much of the Torah they know, how, how many things they remember maybe about some things Jesus may have said. They didn't have a fully formed New Testament then. They didn't have a whole lot of scriptures that even recorded stuff Jesus said at the time, but whatever they had, they probably felt great about. How many times people have uh, maybe given money to something or how many times they have uh, prayed in public, whatever it is, they were really proud of that. And yet they were not loving each other well. So James is simply saying, why don't you have any good works like just simply loving and helping those who need it? Oh, I see why. It's because your faith is dead. Now that is a huge indictment, isn't it? One might say, that seems really judgmental. Well, this is one area where ultimately we see uh, knowing those by their fruit. This is kind of a part of that, right? Call it judgment, call it uh, us evaluating, call it whatever. That is a part of it, right? We have to see. It's not enough to just say what we believe. It has to be shown. Because if it's not shown, it's not a faith that can be trusted. Because it looks dead. You don't trust anything that's dead. So when you see this and and you see James pointing this out, he's saying, your faith is dead. Why? Because it's like a dead man, because it doesn't move. Uh, The the, the old Methodist preacher and theologian, Adam Clark, has uh, an interesting commentary on this idea of faith, dead faith and living faith. Listen to how he puts it. It's, It's so well put. He says, you're pretending to have faith, while you have no works of charity or mercy, is utterly vain. For as faith, which is a principle in the mind, cannot be discerned but by the effects, that is, good works, he who has no good works has presumptively no faith. So my works of charity and mercy will show that I have faith, and that it is the living tree whose root is love to God and man, and whose fruit is the good works here contended for. You see what he's saying? He's bringing up that root and fruit thing again. No one else can know for sure what your faith is. You can't know what my faith is. I can tell you. You can tell me. You can recite things for me. I can recite things for you. That does not prove where my faith is. The only thing that displays where our faith is is not how much we know, but how much love we show and to whom. How do we love people? That's it. That's the only way externally. That doesn't mean we know for sure what's happening in people's heart. We're not saying that, but what we are saying, what God is saying, what James is saying, is one of the ways that we can identify with our own fallible vision, the only way that we can externally validate a, uh, the faith of anyone is, by the, is, is through the ways that they love, not through how much they know, but how much they love. So this, this, uh, this idea about dead faith, What James is pointing out, it's a faith. Dead faith will always have more words than action. Prayer should never be a substitute for action. It should never be an excuse or a pretext for inaction. So this is the proof that James says. It's the moment in which you can realize that perhaps faith is dead. Because dead faith talks, but living faith walks. Living faith acts. And James anticipates it, right? In verse 18, he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. Again, this is the validating principle here. You can say you have faith. And a person in this, you know, uh, imaginary conversation, they can say, well, James, I have faith and you have works. Sure, I don't have any good deeds to show, but I have faith. You've got your works. That's okay, but I don't believe any less than you do just because you have works. And what James is saying is he's, he's anticipating this argument where people are going to engage because he knows us. When we feel poked, this is how we defend ourselves. Who are you to say what I believe? Who are you to say what I think? Just because I haven't done X, Y, and Z, you don't think that I believe these things? That's not fair. That's judgmental. Stop doing that. And James is going, listen, you've got your faith. I've got my works. You're showing me your faith by telling me about your faith. I'm showing my faith by showing and displaying real works, not so that I can be seen or known or or recognized, simply because this is what faith motivates me to do. And I know everybody's faith, we can say like everybody's faith is different and everybody manifests their faith differently. That's true. But there is an objective principle that should be true of anybody with faith. That is these works of love, these works of caring for image bearers. That should be the case for anyone. It might look different, how you love might look different, how you demonstrate your love might look different, but it should still be present. So when people are like, well, no, I have the ways that I think and I don't, and I know what I believe and I trust God and I, I, was, I know that I'm a Christian because I remember when I was seven years old and I walked down the altar and I received the prayer of faith. Or I know that I'm a Christian because I remember this really amazing thing I did because I loved Jesus before. So you can't tell me that what I did 10 years ago was not proof that I'm a Christian right now because I know that I am. James is like, no, it doesn't work that way. That's not how this works. right? You don't get to just rest on the laurels of some great deed we did. or I I, I volunteered at a soup kitchen uh, three years ago, and so you can't... This is something that is living and moving all the time. You know that a body can be living three years ago and not living today? So it's no good to just keep resting on whatever it is we did. This is something that should be ongoing. Every opportunity we get, this is, and it's a challenge and it's, it's not easy. Part of, the, part of the struggle of being sinful beings is, frankly, we struggle with loving when we should. We struggle with being selfish when we should be more focused on others. We struggle with being self-absorbed when we should be more self-giving, right? We struggle with focusing on others when we really would prefer to focus on ourselves. And we do that with our faith. So it's hard. It's not easy. This isn't an easy thing. And yet James is, is giving us this challenge, right? The end of 18, he says, I'll tell you what, you show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Basically, what he's saying is you tend to believe that what you do or what you don't do, those things don't matter because you know what you believe is true. And he's going and James is basically saying real faith doesn't work like that. It's not enough to just say, I believe the right things. You absolutely have to, uh, you can't just feel like that it doesn't matter then what you do or what you choose not to. It doesn't matter that you're not doing these good works. He's saying that it absolutely does. It's how our faith is proven to be alive. Don't talk about anything that you've done, nothing that you do. Just talk to me about your faith and prove it. That's kind of where other people are coming from. I don't really care about these other things. Just tell me about your faith. And And it's almost like the more I can tell you about my faith, that's how I prove my faith. And James is saying, No, the way that you prove that this faith is real is not by all of your good argumentative skills. It's not by your recitation skills. It's by your serving skills. It's by your love. It's by your desire to care for others. What he's done is he's taken someone who says, I have faith, but doesn't feel that works are necessary, and he's effectively argued them into a corner because the only thing that they can respond is uh, is to say, the only way they can respond is to say, Well, I just know I have faith. I just know that I believe. That's it. You ever been there? I just know that I have faith. I I don't know what to say. I know what I believe. I'm going to run back to the thing that I've trusted so, so long, and that's it. I hear what you're saying. I hear you trying to convince me that this is something that should be true, but I just know what I believe, and I sometimes you just, I just got to cling to what's familiar. Be very careful about that. Sometimes it's important. We need to know what's true. As long as what was familiar is true, cling to it. But if what is familiar is untrue, be open to be challenged. Because if not, you might be clinging to a dead faith, but feeling good, thinking you're alive. It's a horrible place to be, to be dead, thinking you're alive. So what is he doing? James is basically saying it doesn't do any good to claim faith, but not demonstrate in how we love others. The idea of God knows my heart. I believe the right things uh, theologically about God. I'm not justified by works anyway. Paul said that, right? Uh, It's my faith that saves me. God knows this is true of my heart. I think James and God would disagree. Certainly does in verse 19 because he goes on to say what? You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. I like this, but J- James is really getting right to the point. Right? He, this tells you a little bit about the the, the uh, people to whom he's writing. This tells you a lot about the audience. Again, context. Ask this question. As an aside, please be careful when you read scripture and just going, "What does this mean for me? What does this mean to me?" Be careful with starting there. We in there. That's great. We need to get there. Always start with, "What did this mean to the original audience?" This passage is going to prove, going to show you what was happening. In the original audience, because what what is James doing by by quoting this or including this in this hypothetical conversation? You believe that God is one. Okay, that's fine. What is he referencing there? James is referencing something his Jewish audience knows all too well. Every single Jewish listener or reader had this memorized. You know why? Because this is something called the Shema. The Shema is something that comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. Every good Jewish boy and girl learned this, memorized this, and recited this every Sabbath. And the Shema is very simple. It's very basic. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That phrase, that statement, was the basis of the Jewish profession of faith and what does it begin with recognizing that God is God and there is no other and and this is this was the Jewish kind of monotheistic profession in a polytheistic world it was very important because the culture of the day the time those times it was always so many different religions and so many different gods and so many different ideas and so it was important to remember regardless of what cultural issues bombard you cling to the truth that there is only one God, the Lord our God is one. This monotheistic proclamation in a polytheistic world, and that's where their faith began, as recognizing who and what God is and how that separated them from the rest of the world. That's a true thing. That is good theology. And James is saying, that's great. You've got really good theology about who God is. You proclaim and profess true things about who God is. You recognize who God is. You, you, you identify these aspects of who God is, and you say it, and those things are true. So here's what he's saying. Sure, you believe that God is one. You believe that there's one true God. You believe the right ideas about God, but is that all that your faith requires? Is that the only thing that it requires is making sure that internally you have all the right inner workings or all the right inner thinkings about who God is? Is that it? Is that the kind of faith that saves? Is that the kind of faith that transforms? Is this what it is to, to follow Jesus? Is it just to make sure you believe all of the right things? Then he says, well, that's if that's it, really good argument of the tool here. If that's the truth, then what separates you from a demon? Frankly, demons have better theology than any of us. They were with God. They know more about God than any of us do. And he says, the demons believe and they tremble. They, in many ways, the demons have more reverence for God than we do. They, real not, they realize the holiness of God. They realize they are not holy. They realize they are not worthy. And they tremble whenever the very presence of God is near. So I ask you again, is what you believe alone enough to show a real saving faith? Just the fact that you believe the right thing. Is that enough? He says, if that's the case, there's no difference between you and the demon. They believe all the right things. They've got really good theology. They know exactly who God is. So, so where, where do you fall? Right? They, they're incredibly orthodox in the way that they understand God. And they're not worshiping all these other gods because they know who the real God is. Go a step further, take uh, the Gerasene demoniac. Remember, if you remember uh, this, this, uh, uh, this demon possessed man in Gerasene and he's just walking. And Jesus is walking and he gets out of the Sea of Galilee and he walks over this hill and there's this demon-possessed man. He doesn't say a word and the demon-possessed man just sees Jesus and he says, oh, son of God, have you come to torment us before the time? He immediately recognizes who God is. He immediately recognizes exactly what Jesus's purpose is, him being the son of God. So the Shema, yes, it's a profession that Yahweh alone is God. That's what James is saying. It's great that you know it. It's great that you identify it. But it's only a profession that never shapes your life if it doesn't move you to action. There's no difference between you and the demons that believe if there's no transformation in how you love and who you love. Period. You're no different. Hear that. Our faith is no different than the knowledge of a demon if it doesn't change the way we love people. Can't put it more more clearly than that. It's not just faith itself. Or faith itself is not just rooted in believing the right facts about God. Our faith should transform how we live, how we love, and who we love. Otherwise, our faith is dead. This is a faith that is, that is rooted in who God is and this ongoing faithfulness to him and obedience to him for sure. But it also includes an ongoing love for others. And it's not just this internal love or professed love. It's a demonstrated love. This is where the idea that we have, well, I think, therefore, I am. That the scary thing about thinking that way is that, uh, that the real center of the human person then becomes the mind. And as long as I think the right thoughts about God, then I'm good to go. That's all that's required. Faith is just something that goes on inside the mind. Faith is, uh, just happens to be the playground of the intellect. It's the place where I get to have fun with different thoughts and arguments. And what that means is that Christianity has then been boiled down to just simply professing a few basic facts on a questionnaire. Do you believe Jesus is God? Yes. Check. Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Yes. Check. Do you believe uh, uh, that, that Jesus uh, died on the cross for your sins and, and rec- uh, reconciled you to a holy God? Yes, check, all things that are true. We call that a Christian, but we completely divorce what we profess from the way that we live and the way that we love. Professing facts is not faith. There has to be more. Hear me out. What you believe and how you believe it is, de- faith is definitely not less than that. But living faith should be much more than that. So Jesus would say again, remember uh, when he said this before, there would be those who say to me, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We've done these things in your name, all of that. There's this huge part, again, where it's like, we've done all these holy things. We've done all these religious things. But what does your love look like for your brother and sister? What does your love look like for your neighbor? So on all of this, James is trying to urge us. He's trying to urge you to consider what real living faith is and and convince us and to charge us not to hold on to a dead faith. You believe in Jesus. Great. But do you believe in his teaching about what it means to love others? Do you believe in his words? Do you love him? How would anybody know? Well, John 13, 35, Jesus tells us by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, I'm going to keep restating this Think about all the good things you know about God, all the wonderful philosophical discussions you get into about God, all the wonderful theological debates that you may enjoy, or the theological debates you just avoid. Whatever you enjoy or avoid, does it lead you into a deeper, more holistic way of loving others? If it does, your faith is living. If it doesn't, your faith is dead. So what does true faith really look like? James gives us quickly two examples. He gives us the example of Abraham, and he gives us the example of Rahab. So the, the end of this chapter just ends, or the end of this chapter ends with twenty verses 21 through 25. And he walks through, he says, let me give you examples of what living faith looks like. And both of these examples are simply this, laying one's life down for the love of another. Sometimes it's laying life down or the or, or laying things that are important down because of our love for God. It always is that. It always is. I lay what it is that's important to me. I set it aside because of my love for God, and it gets demonstrated as such. And many times our love for God is shown, as Jesus said, by our love for other image bearers. So you see, uh, in one case, Abraham is showing, the, the example of Abraham shows what it means to love God even more than the things that are most important to us. And that is, that is really important. Because if you look at the way that James words this, it can be misleading. Because he says, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works? And offering, I'm sorry, justified by works and offering Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see, that faith was active together with his works, and by, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled. This is Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Now, he's, he's building this right off of what he just said in verse 20, right? Since this person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Why is it useless? because it doesn't demonstrate a genuine love in who God is and a genuine love in uh, other image bearers. So look at Abraham. If we know the story of Abraham, it's really interesting how his faith Becomes vindicated. Uh, James uses this word justification. And you see this word used. Paul uses it uh, to be able to uh, explain what it means to truly be justified by faith, specifically by grace through faith. And what, what he's saying is what makes us right? What positions us in a place of rightness? You know, it's a, more of a legal term that says not guilty. You can Guilt is something that is conferred upon you. The judge says and the jury says, based on the evidence, you are guilty or not guilty of this particular crime. That's it. So if you think about that and you really spend, spend time going, okay, what? it's hard because this idea of guilt is a hard one. Because I think many times guilt is something that we think is an emotional thing. When really guilt is a judicial thing. There are many people who might feel guilty about stuff uh, and, or may not feel guilty. And so they don't feel like they need to move because they don't feel guilty. But justification says it really doesn't matter whether you don't feel guilty when you run a stop sign, but judicially you are guilty. You just don't feel it. So don't use your emotions to determine if you're guilty because guilt is not an emotional thing. Our reaction to our guilt might be an emotional thing. But justification says God has placed us and positioned us in a place where we will be rendered a verdict that says not guilty. That's what it means to be justified. That's what Paul means. And that's what James means. More so, when you are justified, that means you are vindicated. So really, what is it that vindicates our faith? Well, he looks at Abraham and he says, look at how Abraham's faith was vindicated. Remember what happened. Abraham had been told, you're going to have a son. Abraham had been told that your seed is going to be like trying to number the stars. So you're going to be, God has made a promise to Abraham. He told Abraham what what was going to, or that he would have a child. And yet his wife was barren, could not have children. And Abraham was still going, okay, well, well, you're telling me I'm going to have a son. I got to believe that. And Abraham's faith in that promise ended up being vindicated later. It wasn't just vindicated when he went to Sarah and said, God told us we're going to have a son. I don't know how, but there's only one way, sweetie, that can happen. So I just want to be faithful. That's all I'm, that's what I'm telling the God. Well, we saw they did some unfaithful things, even though they knew what God had said would happen, right? So his faith wasn't vindicated there. When was his faith actually proven? Well, his faith was actually proven after he had his son. Because years later, Abraham finally has his son and he has Isaac and he's going up the mountain and he's getting ready to make the sacrifice. And God has told him, sacrifice your son. Abraham is like, wait a minute. You promised me this boy. You told me that this was the promise, God. You said that this was it. Can you imagine what Abraham must be feeling? I've been trusting what you've told me. And you finally gave me the son. And yet you're telling me this. And yet Abraham showed his faith by agreeing to do this. He showed his faith by saying, I'm going to go and I will, I will offer my son to you. I will, I will, allow, I will sacrifice him to you. And that's what, that's what God says. Sounds very gory and all of this. And we see exactly what later we find out in Hebrews that Abraham either knew. He knew that eventually if his son died, God would either resurrect uh, Isaac or birth him another son. It's such a crazy kind of situation. We wouldn't really see this now. But the point is to show how Abraham's actions vindicated that very faith. He acted to obey despite the possibility of losing something. Abraham's moment of faith years ago, those, all those years ago, was this proof. It withstood the test of time because he was willing to offer this most precious thing in his life. This is what James is trying to get across as he's challenging his audience. He does the same with Rahab. Rahab in this story, right? Here it is, this woman who would have been looked down upon by the community, this prostitute living in this place where these spies, these uh, uh, spies from God's people, the children of Israel coming in, the, 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 the folks who are following God waiting to occupy this land he's promised them. And they're going in and they're sending spies to see what the lay of the land is. And Rahab, gives up, she hides these spies and puts her life on the line in order for them to have safe passage and for them to be able to take good reconnaissance of the situation. Because of her faith in God, she laid her life down so that she could love others. This is what James is trying to do. That's why he uses these illustrations to say, if you really have faith, then what? how do you lay your life down for the love of another? How do you lay your life down for the lives of others? How does it impact the way you live and the way you love and who you love? This is what James is trying to challenge his audience with. This is what he's showing us, right? That the, our faith alone saves us, but our faith is vindicated by our works. So we can say, I've been vindicated because I went to India. I've been vindicated because I've done all these things. I took someone to meal. Uh, Abraham didn't say to God, well, God, I was faithful to you in the past. How am I going to get out of this one? Surely I've I've done enough to show you that I believe. That's not what he does. Abraham's like, he was vindicated by saying, I will do what you ask of me now. I will do what you ask me now in the moment, in the present. Why? Because living faith is one that follows God in the present. It does not use a moment of past faithfulness as an excuse to be lazy in the present. This is what it means to follow God. So all James is doing, he's pushing back against our inclination to just coast and say, I believe, and then we just gloss over our inaction with with pious language and shiny new books and more facts and no action. We want to call that faith. We want to call that and refer to that as faith. And James says, no, instead I'm calling you to action. God calls you to live out your faith by recognizing that you're called to love a God that did not withhold his most precious son from you. And you show that this faithful love is true by the way that you love others. So just making this real, what this means is we don't just look at issues and go, that's bad. I'm going to pray about it when there are ways that we can actually make real impact. We don't look at issues that affect people, real issues that affect people. And we just kind of make it seem, all you know, those folks over there, I I don't, I may be really frustrated at people who are making hard decisions about what to do with the unborn. And I'm really upset about that. And I'm going to say something that makes me sound like I'm faithful. I'm going to say phrases that make me sound like I'm faithful. But you know what I won't do? I won't actually look at certain systems and structures that make those decisions so difficult. I won't look at some of the issues politically that make things so much more difficult for certain people in certain communities. I won't do that, but I will feel very holy by saying, but I'm still pro-life, but I don't care holistically about the life of all of these folks. That's what dead faith sounds like. It's not enough to just say, I really hope that those, it's really sad that those folks over there don't really have access to be a part of the system and voting and representation. But then I don't do anything to ensure that they have real access to voting and accurate representation. That's what dead faith looks like. It's not enough to be able to know that there are people struggling in our own church, in our own community, in your own neighborhood. And you have the wherewithal to actually make either to help change the situation or make it a little bit easier and going, I'm just going to pray for them. I hope that they make it. That's what dead faith looks like. We've got to figure out what it means to have real living faith and not trusting in a faith that is dead. A faith that is lacking vitality. A faith that has no evidence of any vital signs. We have so often called called our faith something faithful when it lacks a pulse. This is what James is calling us to. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. He basically is saying, if we have a faith that doesn't move us into actually working, into doing real action, it is not enough to just offer thoughts and prayers. It's a faithless prayer. It's a faithless thought, and it's dead. May we be a people that's rooted in the living God, that's undergirded by a living faith, a faith that moves, a faith that cares, a faith that feeds, a faith that clothes, a faith that warms. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we have the luxury that many of the, 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 the audience in this, to whom this letter was written did not have. And we have so many of your words and so many of your thoughts, so much of your heart on display. The fact that we can hear these words given to us by you through the very half brother of Jesus. And we are called into this very difficult challenge for us now in our culture, and our time here as Christians in America, And yet, God, I thank you that you love us so much that you don't leave us like this. You continue to call us to a deeper well of faith, a deeper well of love. God, will will you convict us? Will you show us all the ways that our faith is so selfish? That our faith empowers us to be selfish? That our faith may even encourage us to function as a citizen in a selfish way? Convict us and break that in our heart? Lord, make us a people that proves our faith by the ways, not just in in the things that we say and the things that we charge and the posts that we make. Let our faith be proven by the love that we show and the loving steps that we take. Father, I pray that you would, uh, as we think about what it means to bring glory to you, I pray that it would not be in stuff that's rooted in our own personal aggrandizement and our ways of proving and and showing off our holiness, if you will. God, let it be rooted in this this jealousy for your glory that says, I want to be overwhelmed with this, this feeling of love and concern for your image bearers. Let people know us more for who we love and not what we say. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's receive this benediction from God this final blessing this promise that the God that loves us the God that generously saved us the God that justified us listen to how he makes us right and may these words spur us on to good works like he those works that he created us for now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. May all God's people say, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures.